wanted to talk in the, the second lecture about uh, what I call the lecture, a theology of God as speaking. Really, that comes down practically to our understanding of, of preaching. It's fair to say, as far as I can tell, that mainline churches have generally abandoned preaching, certainly no longer see it as central to uh, what they do. And even in, in some more conservative circles, there's been a temptation to, to move in the direction of, of more conversational approaches to communicating the Word of God or even uh, ritual. And for some years I was dean at Westminster, the seminary where I now teach, and one of the, the perennial problems of the seminary, of seminaries in general, is that, that it's hard to teach preaching, and I think the quality of preaching by and large of seminary graduates is not that great. Uh, and it's a difficult problem to know how to address or how to solve. But I think part of the, the solution, I became convinced that part of the solution was not simply that people need to be taught to preach. They also need to be taught what preaching is. They will need to have a theology of preaching. If you understand a task, you typically perform the task differently and better uh, than you would otherwise. And having a self-conscious understanding of what preaching is, I think, is helpful to doing it well. And basic to a Protestant understanding of preaching is a theology of God as speaking. And a theology of God as speaking, as much as anything else, is what emerges in the Protestant Reformation. Uh, Luther was traumatized by performing the Mass, which would have been a staple, a regular activity for him as a medieval priest. Uh, he made God. The way that God was present, as far as medieval theology was concerned, the primary way that God was present in his church was in the elements of bread and wine at the Mass. This is reflected in uh, medieval church architecture. If you go to, to Europe and go to one of the great medieval cathedrals there, for example, Cologne Cathedral, uh, it's just outside the railway station. If you're changing ch trains in Cologne and you've got an hour, hour and a half to spare, you can go over to the cathedral. It's right opposite the railway station. You walk in through the doors there and the first thing that happens as you walk through the doors is your eyes are drawn to the altar. And that's because whoever it was who designed Cologne Cathedral understood the theology, uh, understood the worship that that cathedral was meant to embody. It was a sacramental worship focused on the Mass. That's not to say there wasn't preaching in the Middle Ages. There was some great preaching in the Middle Ages. Bernard of Clairvaux preaches up a crusade. There were great preachers in the Middle Ages, but preaching did not have quite the central function that the Mass, the sacrament, had. And the uh, <coughs> architecture reflected that. If you go into a Protestant cathedral, say St. Giles' Cathedral in Edinburgh, and you walk through the door... Uh, your eyes will immediately be drawn to the center. And at the center of the, of the cathedral, there is a pulpit, uh, a raised pulpit. Again, the architect understood the theology uh, that the church was to, to facilitate, encourage, and embody. It was a word-centered theology. For, for the Protestant reformers, the word read and the word preached lies right at the center. And in a well-designed Protestant church, you'll typically have a raised pulpit, if you've got the space, and then below the pulpit, you would have 
the baptismal font and the table. And the point being made there by the architect is the word stands above these things. That yes, the sacraments are important. They're there in the center. But they're subordinate to the preaching of the word. Where's your baptistry in this church, Patrick? Oh, it's portable. Oh, even so you can kind of make it important on certain occasions by whipping it in. Where do you put it? When, when you port it, where do you put it? In the center, under the pulpit? Oh, you need to bring it in here and put it under the pulpit. That's, uh, yeah. So there is a shift at the Reformation from sacrament to word. And preaching is central to Protestantism, and it's central to Protestantism because it is preaching that is the primary means of God's presence in the church. I said earlier that if you come to church on a Sunday uh, to hear Scripture explained, that's not what preaching is. Preaching should never be less than that. Preaching should certainly explain the Bible. But you don't gather just... If you just want the Bible explained, you can buy commentaries. You can download stuff off the internet that would help you explain the Bible better. When we gather as believers on a Sunday to hear the word proclaimed, the reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin among them, would have understood that as you're meeting God. The proclamation of the word is the word of God and confronts people with the living God. I'm going to return to this a little bit later, but I think that that implies two things. One, it implies that preaching, the agent in preaching is ultimately not the preacher, but is God himself. And it also demands active listening on the part of congregation. When you think of the Old Testament, how many times you hear the, 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 the imperative, Hear, O Israel, hear. Uh, the Lord doesn't just speak, he commands his people to hear. There is to be an active hearing. So if you come to church on a Sunday and you think, well, as soon as the, the guy gets up in the pulpit and starts to read the Bible and starts to speak, that's when I can sit back and relax because I'm not singing and at that point I become passive. That's not reflecting a biblical understanding of God's speech. We are commanded actively to hear what God has to say. So preaching is central to Protestantism then. One of my favorite quotations from Luther comes from 1522. In the the popular understanding of Luther's life, there are certain dramatic moments that uh, many of us would be aware of, where we think that Luther stands, uh, you know, and is stands alone and is at at great risk. Perhaps supreme among them is the Diet of Worms, 1521, where Luther enters a room that would have been probably smaller than this, would have been filled with the uh, the great and the good of the Holy Roman Empire, uh, who had the absolute power to take his life from him there and then. And at the front of the room would have been uh, the young emperor Charles V. Uh, Luther, a man who just four years earlier was nothing but a minor professor at a minor university in in Saxony, finds himself in a room full of the most powerful men in Europe. Uh, He's also aware that attendance at uh, imperial gatherings uh, is not a, there's not a great track record of surviving attendance at imperial gatherings if you're deviant in your theology. Just over a hundred years previously, John Huss had attended the Council of Constance under a safe conduct from the emperor, which had been withdrawn once he'd arrived and he'd been tried and executed. And we often think of of the Diet of Worms, 1521, the Here I Stand speech as the moment where Luther is most vulnerable. In fact, I think 1522 
It's a far more dangerous moment in Luther's life. After the Diet of Worms, if you know the story, Luther's riding away from the Diet of Worms and is surrounded by armed men who kidnap him. These men are actually employees of Frederick the Wise, Luther's own protector. Uh, Luther's being kidnapped by his own men to take him out of the limelight. And he's whisked away to the Wartburg Castle, which is high above the, the German town of Eisenach. Again, if you go on a Reformation tour, Eisenach is a, a great uh, two-for-one uh, exercise in that Eisenach, uh, high above the town, there is the castle of the Wartburg where Luther lived for nearly a year and worked on translating the uh, Bible into the New Testament into German. And in the town itself, uh, J.S. Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, was born. So you get the, the, the Luther tour and the Bach tour. It's a beautiful town. While Luther is uh, in the Wartburg, the leadership of the Reformation passes to three men. Uh, Andreas Bodenstein von Karstadt, who was uh, a close friend and companion of Luther, later to become a, a major opponent uh, and enemy. A man called Konrad Zwilling. And Luther's uh, much younger and brilliant colleague, uh, Philip Melanchthon, gentle Greek, becomes professor of Greek at Wittenberg at age 21 one of the greatest Greek scholars in Europe at age just 21. These three men take on the leadership of the Reformation. Zwilling and Karstadt take the Reformation in a very radical direction. By December 1521, they're engaging in, uh, in iconoclastic rioting, the smashing up of uh, stained glass windows and images in the church. And if you know anything about Lutheranism, you know Lutheranism actually preserved images and stained glass windows as part of their piety. The Reformation is descending into apparent chaos. One of the reasons I think the Reformation was successful, I tell students, is it involves smashing things up. Uh, and that's an easy sell to young guys. You know, join the Reformation and you can smash stuff up. That's, that's very attractive to young men uh, as, as an option. And Karstadt and Zwilling are certainly capitalizing on that. The problem is, of course, Frederick the Wise sees the Reformation descending into chaos He's going to have to call a halt to it because if the emperor sees an imperial territory descending into anarchy, then the emperor is going to decide it's worth invading and, and, and bringing stability back. The emperor doesn't want civil war. As much as he doesn't like what Frederick the Wise is doing, he doesn't want civil war in the empire unless it's necessary. But if Saxony falls to the anarchists, if you like, then the emperor is going to have to act. So in, early 50, in late 1521, Luther's brought back to Wittenberg incognito to observe what's going on. Some wonderful stories of his time uh, wandering incognito around uh, Wittenberg. Um, while he was uh, in, in Saxony, he was disguised heavily as a knight. He had a beard and a sword, and he was known as Sir George. A couple of students on their way to Wittenberg go into a pub one evening, and they, they see a, a knight sitting in the corner with a great big sword and a beard, reading the Psalms in Hebrew, which that's a weird thing for a knight to be doing in Germany. Uh, so they go over and, and engage him, and this knight explains to them how the Psalms speak of Christ. And uh, I think it's the case that when uh, the knight gets up and leaves, and when they get up to leave, they find that the knight has paid their bill. He's covered their tab for them. Uh, some months later, when Luther returns to Wittenberg and these men are in class awaiting their first class with Luther, who should walk through the door Martin Luther, and they recognize him as the knight, Sir George, that they engaged with that night in the pub. But Luther goes back in December, and he sees the chaos. 
And then in February 1522, he comes back permanently. Rioting is taking place, and it's at this point that Luther is at his most vulnerable. You know, it's often glossed over in the history, but Luther's entirely on his own at this point. He doesn't have any military backing or anything. He's got to preach the Reformation back onto track. That's all he can do. And he preaches a series of sermons. And one of my favorite Luther quotations comes from a sermon he preached uh, at this point. Talking about the Word of God, he says this, I will preach it, teach it, write it, but I will constrain no man by force, for faith must come freely without compulsion. Take myself as an example. I opposed indulgences in all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then comes my favorite line in all of Luther. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Luther's there. He's preaching down these riots in Wittenberg, trying to seize control once again of the Reformation. And it's typical Lutheran overstatement, but what does he say? He says, you know, why has the Reformation succeeded so far? I don't know. I was either asleep or sitting around in the pub drinking beer. And the Word of God did it all. The simple proclamation of the Word of God did it all. Now, as Luther gets older, he realizes that isn't quite enough that the church needs an institutional shape and it needs training for its men and it needs organization and it needs discipline. But fundamentally, what the church needs is the preaching of the word. Uh, We we sang the song earlier, Mighty Fortress, one little word shall fail him. The word, of course, is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, proclaimed in his word, is able to slay the devil. P.T. Forsyth, one of my favorite uh, theologians of the early 20th century wrote a wonderful book on preaching called Positive Preaching in the Modern Mind. And the book opens this way. He said, It is perhaps an overbold beginning, but I will venture to say that with its preaching, Christianity stands or falls. This is surely so, at least in those sections of Christendom, which rest less upon the church than upon the Bible. Wherever the Bible has the primacy which is given it in Protestantism, their preaching is the most distinctive feature of worship. The second Helvetic Confession, a confession put together in Zurich in 1566, the first chapter of the second Helvetic Confession says this, Wherefore, when this word of God is now preached in the church by preachers lawfully called, we believe that the very word of God is proclaimed and received by the faithful. Notice the radicalness of that statement there. When the Bible is preached, the very word of God is proclaimed. There is a sense in which when the preacher preaches, and everything the preacher says should be tested by Scripture, but when the preacher preaches in accordance with Scripture, then the very word of God is proclaimed. A very powerful statement. Larger Catechism, question 155. How is the word of God made effectual to salvation? The Spirit of God makes the reading, but especially the preaching of the word an effectual means of enlightening, convincing, and humbling sinners, of driving them out of themselves and drawing them unto Christ, of conforming them to his image and subduing them to his will, of strengthening them against the temptations and corruptions, or building them up in grace and establishing their hearts in holiness and comfort through faith unto salvation. Preaching, therefore, 
for Luther and for the Protestantism that takes its cue from him is not just about information. Certainly there has to be objective content to preaching. It has to say something. When we preach, we declare what the Bible says. But it also involves an existential confrontation with God's people. God, if you like, is made present in a deep and profound way when the word is proclaimed. Now, a little bit of background to Luther on his understanding of preaching. Uh, and this, this may, just for a few moments, seem a little obscure and a little tedious. But one thing that, uh, that scholarship has, has learned in the last 40, 50 years of Luther studies is that Luther does build on what he learns from his medieval masters. We've seen that a little bit this morning. In the, you know, if you were Thomas Aquinas talking about justification, in order for God to declare you righteous, you, you, you have to change. You have to become intrinsically righteous. Luther was taught by his late medieval masters, you don't have to be intrinsically righteous, you just have to do your best, and God will declare you righteous. So the, the connection between the declaration and what's intrinsic to you is, is severed. That is a step towards justification by faith, even though that's very incorrect theology in the Middle Ages. Think about justification by faith. What does it depend upon? It depends upon the fact that what you are intrinsically is not what God declares you to be extrinsically. That piece of paper with the ink on it, maybe a $10 bill, intrinsically it's worthless, but the government declare it's worth $10. That was the dynamic in the late Middle Ages, and it remains the dynamic in Protestantism. It's the same thing with Luther's understanding of language. Luther had an acute understanding of language as something that was, in a sense, creative. Late medieval theology debated long and philosophy debated long and hard over the status of words. Take, for example, a dog. We have lots of dogs. But when we use the word dog, are we using it to refer to some sort of, for want of a better term, ideal dogginess out there in which all dogs sort of participate so we can then call them dogs? Or are we creating a category? When, when my Jack Russell and your Schnauzer or Poodle are together, we say a group of dogs there, we kind of using language in a creative way. Are we creating a category called dog. I think we can sort of sympathize with the, uh, the creative nature of language that way. When we look at the, uh, the, the identity wars that go on in, in society today, most of the, the most heated debates take place in the zone of, of words. There was that case recently, I can't remember the guys. I have no interest in American sport, you'll hate me for saying that, but... And I love the fact that you hate me for saying that, I have to say. It gives me some satisfaction. You know, I think it was a basketball manager. Basketball? Who invented basketball? Every time you get the ball, you score. I mean, it's got to be like British football, you know, like there's maybe three or four goals in 90 minutes. That's a sport. Not when they, you run from one end, put it in the hole, and they run back, put it in the hole. You might as well just switch on in the last 15 seconds to see who has the ball last. <laughs> anyway, it's my roundabout basketball. But there was, a, I think, an owner of a basketball team. I think it was a basketball team. Got into trouble recently because he made inappropriate comments, racial comments. 
The interesting thing was that uh, he made these comments to his mistress. He'd been cheating on his wife. And it struck me as interesting that the outrage was all about the words and not about the adultery. And I use that here as to say that we do have a sense now that, that words are creative. Words are powerfully creative. That even this man's actions as an adulterer will not seem to be as bad as his racially inappropriate remarks about either members of his team or another team. I, I can't remember who it was. Uh, when you think about uh, the speech codes that, that exist now in the public sphere, that you can't use, you know, the, if you use a certain kind of word and it's a slur, that is, that is a very serious crime. I mean, the irony is nobody's getting physically hurt, but it's seen as, as highly inappropriate. And, and there's a sense in which, without agreeing with the politics of that, uh, of, of the precise politics of it, I can understand that words do hurt. When somebody says you're an idiot, you might say, well, it, it didn't mean any difference to me. Well, actually, it would have done. Um, students often say to me, how do you cope with bad book reviews? And I would say, well, you shrug your shoulders and move on. But if anybody tells you it doesn't hurt when you get a bad book review, they're a liar. Because when somebody calls you an idiot, that hurts. They've created a kind of reality at that point. And this is the sort of language, the philosophy of language that Luther comes, uh, emerges from in the late Middle Ages, that language has this creative power. And I want to suggest that that's, I don't want to be a radical postmodernist, but I want to say that the, the, the modern radicals who've latched on to the, the creative power of language, actually that's quite a biblical idea. The difference is they've detached the language from the one who ultimately speaks it. God is the one who ultimately speaks, but language is nonetheless powerful and creative. Luther says this in his lectures on Genesis, writing about the work of, of the fifth day. Luther says this, Who could conceive of the possibility of bringing forth from the water a being which clearly could not continue to exist in water? But God speaks a mere word. And immediately the birds are brought forth from the water. If the word is spoken, all things are possible, so that out of the water are made either fish or birds. Therefore any bird whatever and any fish whatever are nothing but nouns in the divine rule of language. Through this rule of language, those things that are impossible become very easy, while those things that are clearly opposite become very much alike and vice versa. Luther there points to the fact that he's touching on the fact that in Genesis, God is described as a speaking God. And God's words are the powerful motive forces, dynamic forces of creation. I'm going to bring this over to the, the human realm shortly, but the, the thing I want to first grasp is speech is powerful and creative. It changes things. And human speech can do that too. I performed a wedding for a young couple in a church this summer, and at the end of the wedding ceremony I say, I now pronounce you man and wife. I'm not describing a situation. I'm creating a situation. I'm kind of almost, I'm acting like a kind of quasi-God at that point. I'm making out of two entirely separate people one married unit by pronouncing with all the power of, of the state of Pennsylvania behind me as somebody who can do weddings in the state of Pennsylvania. I'm pronounced, making a legal pronouncement and bringing that legal situation into existence. There's a creative dimension to language rooted in the being of God himself. 
And that flows over. And we just pointed to that as I talked about performing a wedding. That flows over into what it means to be a human being. Notice in Genesis, uh, what does God do? God names Adam. And then what does Adam do? Adam names everything else. The Lord gives Adam dominion over everything else. And the sign of Adam's dominion, the sign of Adam's power over everything else is that he gets to name it. Naming is a powerful thing, isn't it? You don't, uh, typically we don't choose our own names. Our names are given to us by our parents sometimes. My brother-in-law married my sister and uh, his surname's still Truman because he so hated his own surname. But when he got married, he said, I want to get rid of my surname. Can I have your surname? So I said, sure. So I have a brother-in-law who has the same surname as me, even though he married my sister. But typically, we don't change our names. Our names are given to us. They're a sign where we stand in the pecking order. In old uh, Scottish society, or certainly in in modern-day Russian society, you'll probably carry a patronymic. Not only do you have your name, but you'll have a middle name that reflects the name of your father relativizes you even more, locates you not just within a family and under, under uh, the authority of parents, but specifically your identity is rooted in the identity of your father who preceded you at that point. Naming is a powerful and creative thing. And it's interesting to me that the, the idea of the image of God has to have this linguistic component to it. Whether you think of the image of God in terms of, well, human beings a thinking, reflective beings like God is a thinking, reflective being. Or whether you think of the image of God in functional terms, in that God does certain things and we faintly reflect that in the functions that we have. I think probably the truth should combine the two. Language lies at the heart of both of them. How are we self-reflective? Because we're linguistic. How do we carry out our vice-regency in the created realm? By language. Naming the animals, that establishes our position. And it also points us back to the powerful, creative nature of language and also to the fact that human beings are those who speak. We relate to each other by speech. We relate to God and he relates to us by speech. And our speech, like God's speech, can be created, as I say, in a wedding ceremony. If you're at work, you're fired. That's a creative action performed by speech. So that's one aspect of uh, the Bible's teaching on, on speech. And one, as I said, that Luther picks up powerfully. He sees when God speaks in Genesis, that's creative. And it's rooted against this background of saying that, that if you like, speech is the most fundamental building block of reality. What he learned in the late Middle Ages we might also, uh, I think the, the Luther, Luther grasped this when he talks about the fall. This is how Luther describes the fall. In his commentary on Genesis 3.1, Luther says this, Moses expresses himself very carefully and says, the serpent said. That is, with a word, it attacks the word. The word which the Lord had spoken to Adam was, do not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For Adam, this word was gospel and law. It was his worship, it was his service, and the obedience he could offer God in the state of innocence. 
These Satan attacks and tries to destroy. Nor is it only his intention, as those who lack knowledge think, to point out the tree and issue an invitation to pick its fruit. He points it out indeed, but then he adds another and a new statement, as he still does in the church. Let's unpack that a little bit. First of all, the first thing to grasp there is uh, Luther is pointing to the linguistic assault of the serpent is significant. The serpent comes and he speaks. And he speaks as a response to God's speech. God has said, do this, do not do this, and live. The serpent comes along and he offers an alternative speech. Second thing then, I think it comes down to, we, we could say this, so how, how would one way of describing the fall be? The fall is when Adam decides to accept an alternative reality to that which God has set forth. What the serpent is trying to do is create a new reality. He doesn't just point to the tree, he contradicts God's word. And he's not just calling into question God's character. We typically think about the serpent's calling into question God's character. I think Luther would go further and say, the serpent is creating an alternative reality. He's describing reality in a different way. And the choice that lies before Adam is, which reality will you accept? The reality of God or the reality that the serpent has set before him? Calvin says a similar thing in Institutes 2.1.4. He says this, It is to be observed that the first man revolted against the authority of God, not only allowing himself to be ensnared by the wiles of the devil, but also by despising the truth and turning aside to lies. Assuredly, when the word of God is despised, all reverence for him is gone. His majesty cannot be duly honored among us, nor his worship maintained in its integrity, unless we hang, as it were, upon his lips. Hence, infidelity was at the root of the revolt. It's this repudiation of God's word, this acceptance of an alternative reality that Luther sees lying at the heart of human sin. This leads then to a couple of comments about, directly about preaching. Preaching, I think in the Old Testament, is very much akin to the presence of God. Two examples. Uh, First of all, Think of the Elisha and the Shunammite, the widow of Shunem, not the widow, the lady in Shunem. Remember, Elisha passes through Shunem fairly regularly. Uh, The lady builds like an annex on the roof of her house so that when the man of God is passing through town, he's always got somewhere to stay. Uh, She's clearly a very wealthy lady, a delightful lady. She wants to serve the Lord. Uh, The man of God says, do you have any any lack in your life? And she says, no, I live among my people. I've got everything I need. The, the man of God's servant, those spots, he doesn't have a child, which would have been a, a burden to her, uh, probably emotionally and certainly socially in, the, in, in this particular form of, of society where, where not having a child would have been seen as a stigma uh, for a woman, a social stigma for a woman to bear. The man of God says, well, in a year's time, you'll have a child. So she has the child, the child grows, the child dies suddenly. And the woman runs to see the prophet. 
And the prophet hands his staff to his servant and says, go, run to the child, lay your staff on the child's head, bring him back from the dead. And the woman throws herself at the feet of the prophet and refuses to leave until the prophet comes with her. Why? Because the prophet was the one person in Israel at that time through whom the word of God came. This is death we're dealing with. She needs God present to raise the child. She needs the word of God present. Therefore, she needs the man of God present. And notice the the strange thing, the odd thing that her husband says to her. She doesn't tell him why she's going. She just says, I'm going to go and see the prophet. And he says, why? It's not a new moon or a Sabbath. It's not a festival day or a Sabbath day. Well, that would have been when the Jews gathered in the synagogue for what? To hear the word of God, to meet with God. So, there's a great example of uh, the word of God is the presence of God. Yes, there's a way in which God is present everywhere all the time in a bare metaphysical way, sustaining things. But in a special way, he's present through the declaration of his word. Second example, and this is the negative example of this, is that the absence of God's word is the absence of God. Amos 8, 11. Luther, I won't quote Luther on this. Luther has a lot to say uh, on this. But Amos 8.11 reads as follows. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord God, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread nor thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. They shall wander from sea to sea and from north to west. They shall, not, they shall run to and fro to seek the word of the Lord, but they shall not find it. The final famine will be what? The absence of God from the people. Not an absence of bread, not an absence of grain or whatever. It'll be the absence of word. And they'll run from shore to shore and they will not find the word of God because God will be absent from his people. And bear on that text and then a text in Isaiah, a tradition grew up that, that God would be absent from his people until such time as the heavens were torn open. What do we read in Mark chapter 1? If you've got a translation that says the heavens were opened, that's a faulty translation. That's not what the Greek says. The heavens in Mark 1 are torn open. And what happens when the heavens are torn open? The Holy Spirit descends in the form of a dove as Christ is baptized and God the Father speaks. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. God is present with his people. How do we know that? The heavens have been torn open. We hear speech. All of this then, to bring this back to to Luther and the Reformation understanding of preaching, what is preaching? Preaching is a declaration of God's word. Is that informational? Well, it's never less than informational. But I would say there are two other aspects of the preaching of God's word that we need to grasp in order to understand the centrality of preaching in Protestantism, and whether you're a preacher or a congregant, to understand what your attitude should be when you come to church on a Sunday. The first one is, preaching the declaration of the word is where the people of God meet with God in the most powerful way. That's why the woman, the Shunammite, didn't just pull out the scriptures and read them, She went to the man of God because he was the man through whom God's word came. Just as as an aside, I have a favorite phrase I use. I'm a historian. I trained as a 
social and economic historian originally, I have a phrase that I use to, to provoke theological students, and that is certain social and economic conditions must apply. If you think that the primary place you meet God is when you sit in your room on your own and read your Bible and pray to him, think about that for a second. Uh, Certain social and economic conditions must apply. If you tell me that that's the primary place where you meet with God, I'm going to say, well, you have to live in a society where, one, you have private space. My mum lives in an old weaver's cottage in Gloucestershire in, in England, and it's got an extension built on it now, but in the, in the 19th century, it was just two rooms. Room downstairs where they cooked the food, where the weaver wove and where the family lived, and then upstairs there was a bedroom where they all slept, all of them. And they kept multiplying. It gives you an interesting idea on notions of privacy uh, that have developed in the last 100, 150 years. But if you have a quiet time, you have to be able to go somewhere by yourself. Uh, you also have to live at a time when you have cheap and easy access to print. That's only really come in the last 400 years or so. You also have a, if that's the vision of the Christian life that your church projects, then your church can only possibly exist in a time when there are high levels of literacy. In Luther's day, literacy was very low. It was growing. It was very low. In the Middle Ages, literacy was abysmally low. Most Christians throughout history have not been able to read the Bible for themselves. I find it hard to believe that God would have designed a religion which required the invention of the printing press for you to truly and properly meet with him. I don't think I can't prove it from Scripture, but I'm not sure that God would have thought that way. He would have arranged for the printing press to be invented a whole lot earlier, I think, had that been the case. The primary way in which most people throughout history have met God, learned what the Bible said, is by gathering together and hearing the Bible read and hearing the Bible proclaimed by preachers. It correlates, I think, with uh, what we see in the Old Testament. It correlates with what we see in the New Testament. So the first thing to grasp about preaching, I think, is Sunday gathered worship, and when the word is proclaimed, something special is happening there. The people of God, as the people of God, are meeting with God. Where do I find a gracious God, Luther asked? Well, one of the answers he came back with was, I find him in the word proclaimed. When Christ is preached, Christ is present. That's where I meet with him. And for Luther, it was always more comforting to have somebody else declare the word to him than to read it for himself. The word comes from the outside. When you sit on a Sunday and the preacher preaches to you, you have no control over what he says. You are confronted by what he says. You have the demands of the law pressed upon you to break your self-righteousness. And you have the promises of God pressed upon you to reassure you. The second thing about preaching is it's not just, I think, about God being present with his people. I would suggest that preaching is also a redescription of reality. What does the world do to you? Six days a week, it declares to you that reality is such and such. It's the voice of the serpent, six days a week, telling you the world isn't like this, it's like that. It does it in many subtle ways. Uh, my colleague Greg Beale at uh, Westminster is always saying, uh, you know, when was the last time you watched a soap opera and a marriage starts to fall apart and one of the partners says to the other, 
We need to sit down and read the Bible and pray about this. We need to meet with our pastor to talk this issue through and to pray about it. Well, that is certainly describing the world the way it is. But I think it's also reinforcing and creating the way the world is. Apart from anything else, I think often this bleeds over into uh, another message that the world preaches, I think, is we're all special. We know it does that because when that guy stood up at the graduation ceremony a couple of years ago and made that speech where he started off by saying, none of you are special, and most of you are going to go off to be fairly mediocre, that made national news. I mean, it's just the truth, but it made national news because it goes against the reality that is continually projected to us. That bleeds over into Christian circles, I think, with expectations of preaching. How many people come to church on a Sunday expecting the general proclamation of the word to solve their specific problem? I can't, I've lost count of the times people in my congregation would say to me, I think I need counseling on this. And I'll say to them, no, you need to listen to what the preacher's saying on a Sunday. There are certain issues, I think, that people may need counseling for. People have been terribly abused need special help, many of them. People who are stuck in particular sort of specialized sins may need specialized help. But by and large, most of the problems most of us face, most of the time, could be solved by listening to what the preacher says as he declares the whole counsel of God week by week from the Sunday pulpit. Because our problem is that we bought into a view of reality that's been preached to us out there. For Martin Luther, yes, one-on-one stuff was important, but far more important was being in church. When Peter the barber says to him, I'm struggling with my prayer life, a central part of Luther's advice is, get yourself to church, hear the word preached, hear the word sung, and allow it to sink into your soul. Preaching is a redescribing of reality, the creating of an alternative reality. And the challenge for those who preach is to do it well and compellingly. And the challenge for those who listen is to listen hard and to believe it and to use it as a way of screening out the voices that you hear the other six days of the week. I've said this to students many times. One of the most deadly things you watch on television or on your computer, you know, the usual answers come back would be pornography or violence. And yeah, those can be dangerous. Well, they can be. They are dangerous things. But the most dangerous things are much more subtle. You look out your window and you see a guy with a ski mask and a, a blood-dripping chainsaw walking down your street. You're going to phone the police. It's dangerous. Or if you're in the mid probably you're going to reach for your firearm. If you're British, you're going to phone for the police. If you're American, you're going to reach for your submachine gun or whatever you have the <laughs> constitutional right to carry. Uh, but you could sit in the same house while waiting for the police to arrive and die because your chimney is blocked and the house is filling with carbon monoxide and you never notice it. And more people are going to die of carbon monoxide probably than of people walking down the street with blood-dripping chainsaws. Commercials. I think commercials are some of the deadliest things you can see. If you don't know what they're doing, they're deadly because they're projecting an alternative reality where everything can just get better and better if you get the right credit or if you buy the right thing. No, life is going to get worse and worse. You're going to get old, you're going to get ill, and you're going to die, and it's going to be nasty at the end. That's the truth task of the preacher is to persuade people of that and to point them to the answer. What the television sell, sells you are myths of immortality. 
or distracting entertainment that stop you thinking about these things. The task of the preacher, as far as Luther and the reformers were concerned, is to make people face reality and then point them to the answer, to the nastiest bits of that reality. So Reformation preaching then, it's not just about information. It's about the presence of God. And it's about presenting the people of God with reality as God has created it and God has described it, not as the world strives to recreate it and re-describe it. We've got five minutes. I'll take a couple of questions. I think there's going to be a roving microphone this time so that uh, it'll be easier for members... I'm sorry, I should have repeated questions last time. It'll be easier for members of the audience to hear the questions. Any questions? That's good because I've told you everything I know on the subject so I couldn't possibly answer any questions you want to ask. Oh, we got one. All right. uh, For Martin Luther or the other reformers, what were some of the uh, truths that they were seeking to uh, combat the alternate reality with? Uh, Well, for for Martin Luther... uh, he makes, a, he makes a distinction, a famous distinction in 1518 between the theologians of glory and theologians of the cross. And essentially, to, to boil them down, theologians of glory are those who make God in their own image. Theologians of the cross are those who look to where God has revealed himself to see what he's like. Those who look to the cross. And I think Luther would say that, that those two categories capture the only two ways one can do theology. Either you're making God in your own image or you're allowing God to determine who and what he is and how he is towards us. And and certainly in Luther's day, the primary issue he would have seen in the church's day was that people were being taught that they could be good enough for God. They could make themselves good enough for God by buying indulgences or going to mass often enough or following the church's instructions on uh, relics, these kind of things. And I would say, you know, similar problems today. We're all aware of... You chat to the person who says, well, yeah, I'm pretty confident Hitler's going to hell, but I'm not Hitler. I I think I'll be, you know, God will let me through at the last minute if if indeed he does exist. So that sort of works righteousness would have been the key issue for Luther. That's why preaching of the law is so important to it. Because the, the root of that problem is that we understand God's holiness in very human and finite terms. And Luther wants to press home the law and say, no, no. The first thing you need to understand about the reality of God is he is so transcendently holy, you don't stand a chance in and of yourself. And once you've preached the law and crushed the person, disabused them of that false reality of self-righteousness, then you can point them to Christ. So I suppose a one way to answer your question, what Luther would see it as a two-part process. You have to tear down the false reality and then present them with the truth. Could you explain the counter-argument to Martin Luther's um, attitude towards the Jews? Yeah, Uh, those of you, uh, many of you may be aware of this. Uh, Martin Luther wrote a a very vicious uh, treatise against the Jews in 1543 uh, in which he he called for synagogues, among other things, to be burned down with Jews inside. Uh, 
His last sermon preached uh, while he was on the road in um, Eisleben is... uh, contains an appendix where he, he again attacks the Jews. So the last thing he ever said from a pulpit was a polemic against the Jews. So it's a, it's a complicated issue to address. I'll give you the, sort of the, the Cliff Notes version. First of all, while there is a connection between late medieval anti-Jewish thinking and the Holocaust, it's not a simple one because late medieval people didn't think in, in racial terms. For Luther, a Jew that converts, the problem's gone. Whereas the Nuremberg Laws of the Third Reich made it very clear that even if a Jew converts to Christianity, it's a blood problem. It's it's bogus science, but it's seen to have a sort of biological aspect. For Luther, the issue's a religious one, that the Jews are a a wrong religion. Secondly, uh, one could say that that treatise is... In many ways, it's an an angry and extreme one, but it's sadly pretty typical for its day. You go to Germany and you'll see these medieval churches with pigs, pig-shaped gargoyles carved into the wall, indicating Jews not welcome. There was a strong tradition of anti-Judaism in late medieval Europe, in large part based on the fact that Europe was, was Christendom, that every member of the church was also a member of the state, Uh, So what happens when you've got a group that won't be baptized? Where do they fit? They they look dangerous and scary. They look subversive. Thirdly, I I say to students that when when you're doing history, the expected never needs explanation. When somebody does something that everybody else in their day and generation is doing, you don't need to explain that individual's actions. When Luther writes a hateful uh, treatise against the Jews, one would expect that from a theologian, a person of of Luther's era. What makes Luther interesting is that 20 years before, in 1523, he writes a treatise that Jesus Christ was born a Jew, in which he advocates for Christians to be kind to their Jewish neighbors to build a, a base for preaching the gospel to them. So the question for Luther, in some ways, is not, why does he hate the Jews in 1543? Everybody hates the Jews in, in 1543, other than the Jews in Germany. The question is, why does he change his mind? And it kind of goes back to that quotation I gave about Luther sitting around in the pub and drinking beer and the word was out there doing it all. Up to about 1525, 1526, Luther is very confident that the world is about to end and Jesus is about to come back and all we need to do is preach the gospel. You hit the late 1520s, the Reformation's suffering setbacks, the Emperor doesn't subscribe the Augsburg Confession, the Lutheran Confession. Uh, the Catholic Church is retrenching. Uh, people are, you have the Anabaptists you know, causing all kinds of chaos. The Reformers have fallen out among themselves, Lutherans of England and Luther against certain other Lutherans. The world's very different to Luther then, and, and a number of things happen. And one of them, I think, is he gets disillusioned. He gets disillusioned that he begins to realize the end is not about to come. So he looks for people to blame. And he blames the Catholics, he blames the Papists, he blames the Anabaptists, he blames the Turks, and he blames the Jews. The Jews have got to convert, as far as Luther's concerned, before the end of time. So when he enters the last decade or so of his life, he's looking for people to hate, the people who prevented Christ coming back, and he zeroes in on the Jews. So 
you know, that's the, the question for Luther is why does he change his mind? The remarkable thing about Luther, he, he writes this wonderful treatise on the Jews in 1523. Comes out of nowhere. Why is a man in 1523 writing about the Jews in such positive and kind terms? Then he reverts more to type, even, even as he becomes more extreme. Um, so I make no excuse for Luther and the Jews. I certainly don't think, you know, Luther doesn't cause Hitler. If we're going to try to tie Luther together with, with the Third Reich, what would we say? I think we would say Luther was emblematic of a wide and deep anti-Jewish tradition in Europe that comes to its fruition, its, its final fruition in the Holocaust, 1941 onwards. So Luther is part of that. He doesn't cause it, but he's a representative part of perpetuating it. Sadly, I, a couple of years ago, I wrote a book on, on how to do history, and I did uh, there's a section there where I looked at Holocaust denial. Because I was thinking, you know, if, if you can't prove the Holocaust happened in history, you can't prove anything. And I spent a lot of time reading Holocaust denial websites and anti-Semitic websites. Many of them either have Luther's later writings on the Jews or have links to them on the website. And certainly in Nazi Germany, his writings were reprinted as part of the, the Nazi propaganda exercise. Uh, but to, to say, you know, Luther caused the Holocaust, it's too simplistic. He's part of a, a problem that culminates in the Holocaust, I think is a better way of putting it. So I don't want to excuse him. I don't want to relativize him absolutely, but I also want to you know, put him in context and make him more explicable. Yeah, one more and then we'll break for lunch. Did Martin Luther have his hate for the Jews um, before he um, became a Christian? Did he have a hatred for the Jews before he became a Christian? Um, I don't know. I don't think he wrote on the Jews before 1523, which was six years after he sort of hit the headlines and had emerged as a Protestant reformer. So the answer to that is I, I don't know. It would not surprise me if he, he partook of the typical anti-Judaism of his day, because there'd been really no reason for him not to until he discovered the gospel. Um, so I don't know, uh, but you know it might be worth something, something worth looking up.